Happy Easter. Welcome to uh, Sierra Bible Church. If I haven't had the opportunity yet to meet you, my name is Jesse, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to share the word here uh, in a moment and celebrate Easter and what Jesus has done. <clears throat> but I get the pleasure this morning of, of doing something really fun that we enjoy doing. I get to do a baby dedication on Easter Sunday this morning, which is really neat. Um, to celebrate all things new, why not celebrate new life? And so I want to invite uh, uh, some church family of ours to come on up, Will and Laura and their little baby boy, Finn. You just stand right here. And their grandmother, uh, tell me your name one more time. Molly. She's going to take some pictures. That's why I got dressed up this morning. Um, so <clears throat> what we do uh, with a baby dedication, just so you understand, is we, we, uh, we don't think any, anything weird or spiritual is going to happen this morning. It, but it's, it's basically what we're doing is we're, we're creating uh, a time for you two to stand up and make a covenant with the church and for the church to make a covenant uh, with them. And the word covenant just means promise. So uh, a better way to say it, uh, an everyday way of saying it, is they want to promise to raise baby Finn in a way that he would come to know who Jesus is, the goodness of the Lord, and, and to teach him according to Scripture and all those great things we know as a family. They want to promise that uh, to the Lord, but also to you as witnesses. And then also, as a church family, some of you may not know them, but now you do, and they want to invite you into that process, right? As the old saying goes, it takes a village to raise a saint. Yeah. When they're that young, we have to be careful with our language. Uh, and so what I want to do is I'm just going to ask them to say I do uh, to the church. Do you promise to raise Finn according to the scriptures, according to the goodness and the promises of Jesus Christ? I do. Awesome. Then you, you're now husband and wife. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, church, I want you to say I do back as well for those of you who want to help make that commitment to pray for them and, and to guide them along. And so, church, do you promise to help guide them and hold them accountable to those promises as well? And the church said... Right now I get to pray for guidance and wisdom. And so I'm going to take little baby Finn in my arms. I've, I have four of these. So I know what I'm doing. Even though my, my, my wife might debate that reality. All right. This is working out. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, we present ourselves before you. And we thank you for new life. We thank you for the gift of children. You tell us in Scripture, Lord, not to do anything to hinder a young one coming to you. And so I pray, Lord, that that would be the case for Finn. Guide him, direct him, love on him. I pray the same for his parents and for his family and for us as a church to do the same, to love him and guide him and to show him the truth in Jesus, to always be gracious but also truthful in all that we do. We present Finn to you knowing, Lord, that, that he's made in your image, that he bears the mark of God, that he's unique and special. And we trust you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You think I could try to just preach with him? Because I think, I think the response would be pretty powerful. The only problem is I'm, he kind of smells a little bit. <laughs> Give him a hand. God bless you. He's good. Oh, for you guys. Yeah. God bless. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hugs are good. (laughs) For sure. If this morning you don't have um, a Bible, I want to encourage you to just raise your hand and one of the ushers 
We'll let you use one of ours. We're going to turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1. <clears throat> Gospel of John, chapter 1, this morning. And uh, if you have your Bible, like I said, turn there, or whatever else works for you. John 1. I don't know um, what Easter feels like for you and your family, but I know for the church, it can be a stressful time. And this week, one of, for one of the first times in many years, as I was preparing, what I wanted to share with the, with the church, with you that are family, but also for those of you who are visiting and those of you who, who, who have come and, and maybe you believe in Jesus, but you don't totally follow him, or I don't know why you're here, but Easter Sunday is one of those Sundays that's known in the church that there are going to be people who maybe don't know the Lord that are going to be here this morning. And so for the first time in a long time, I, had on, I have two screens that I use in my office, one for um, my Bible program that I use that helps me find all that I need to find, and then one for my Word document. And it allows me to float between sermon and, and note-taking and what have you. And this week, I had five different Word documents up on my desk, five. And uh, I didn't like any of them. I hated them all. And Mondays, usually for me, I, I, I actually, uh, after a Sunday, I go into the office on a Monday, even though I'm a little bit more taxed and tired from preaching, and I just enjoy just going right back to work in Scripture and studying what God has for me and putting behind the success or the failure of that message is behind me as fast as possible. And, um, and so here I was on Monday, and Monday I, I didn't get to get what I wanted done, and so Tuesday came, and I just was, was just kind of a little frustrated, filled with a little bit of anxiety about what I would say. And then I was reminded of Jesus and how he taught and how he thought about teaching. And there's a particular passage in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus is followed by the crowds because that just was the case. He was that kind of guy. There was something about the way he taught. There was a new kind of authority. Uh, There was a message that he carried that no one had ever taught like this before. He was performing miracles. He was feeding people. And so the crowds would press about him. And there's this passage that says the crowds were following Jesus. And so Jesus taught him a parable. And in the parable, what he said is basically the kingdom of God, the message of God, is like a farmer who went out into the field. And that farmer grabbed the seed, if you will, the message of God, threw the seed out. Some landed on good soil. Some landed on bad soil. Some landed on hard soil. Some was choked up by the weeds. Others were taken up by the birds of the air. They were swiped away. And then Jesus stood there after sharing this parable, the message of God. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. And then he left. Imagine if that was my Easter message this morning. So the kingdom of God is like a farmer. There's the good message. If you have ears here, if not, see you later. The disciples actually were so taken back by this message that later, the disciples pull them off to the side and they go, Jesus, what was that? I've had a few of those messages, by the way. What were you saying? And Jesus explains, in essence, what he shares is that those who are mine will be mine, and those who don't want to be mine won't be mine. And so I take comfort. This, it, it wasn't until then that I realized that, that, once again, being reminded of the goodness of God towards salvation, that he will call those who are his home, that I cannot manipulate. My notes will never be perfect enough. It's about Jesus. And Jesus calling people to himself. That's what we celebrate on Easter. This resurrection where God calls men, women, young, old, sinners to himself. 
And I want to start, as I said, in the Gospel of John, in the very first chapter, and we'll end in the Gospel of John in a little bit. But starting out in the Gospel of John, before we get into the message, I want to ask you a couple questions. And that question would be, what is it that you live for? Or another way to put it is, why do you exist? Or another way I would put it would be, what is your purpose? Do you have impact in your life? And John, I think, kind of answers some of these questions about why you were created, why you exist, and what your purpose is. And John 1, verse 1, it goes all the way back to the beginning, before time began, and it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. This is part of the answer here. All things were made through God. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Take note of the word life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Jump to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word, now, now we're told, God himself, the Word, who was there from the beginning, became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory. Take note of the word glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What were you created for? First of all, you were created. You were created. And the reason you were created is because of this idea of glory. Let me define glory briefly for a moment. The word glory means weighty. The word glory means purposeful. It's got value to it. God is often described as glorious, that, that there, there's a weightiness to God. What that means is he weighs heavy on you. He's important. He's, he's valuable. And the word glory ties into a couple things here in regards to what does it mean to live a life full of value? What does it mean to live a life of weightiness? And the first point in this is, is to live a better life. In John 1, it says it here. He was the life, the life in the, in the light of men. To live a better life, to live a life not of depression, not a life of anxiety, but, but a life of peace, a, a better life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 actually says it this way, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What he's saying here in, in Corinthians is the same thing John is saying, in essence, in the beginning of the Gospels. We want you to have a life, God wants you to have a life of value, a life of worth, a life worth living, a life of impact, a life that echoes in eternity. But the second part of this, I believe that you can see in verse 11, is he says he came to his own, his own once that he had intimacy with him, but, but they didn't know him, his own. There, there's a love, there's a knowability here. At one time, God knew his people, and his people knew who he was. This commandment of love is in Matthew twenty two thirty seven. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And it tells us that we love not because we love, but because he first loved. We've said it on a Sunday before, and it's worth repeating. Mankind's greatest need is to be fully known and fully loved. Let me ask you the question this morning. Who really knows you? Like, who really knows you and still loves you? 
But imagine if, if your thoughts could be seen as if they were on a ticker on Facebook, right? Imagine if, if you could have a picture of everything you thought, everything you did. All of those things. See, see the, the reality of this is, is that God is all-knowing. We're told he's all-knowing. He knows everything. This week I was sharing a, um, about church and stuff with a guy in the gym this week, and, and uh, he was telling me, he said, I can't go to church. I said, why? He says, because if I walk in those doors, I'm going to get struck by lightning. Now, the Bible doesn't teach, and I've loved, I love churches that say this, okay, where, where churches will essentially say, don't call this room the sanctuary. It's not the sanctuary. It's a room where people gather. You're the sanctuary. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you are, God is. Little did this man know in the gym, God was actually looking at him right in his eyes. Hey, man, if you haven't been struck dead yet, you're going to be okay. Come to church. You won't die, I promise. Some of you may feel that way right now. I can't wait till this is over with because I feel like I'm going to die. Now, the reality of what I'm teaching here is that, that God is all-knowing. He's all-present. He's all places at all times. He's on the mountaintops. He's in the valleys. He, he, he's where there's rivers. He's, he's there in the desert, the good parts of life, the bad parts of life. Now, let me ask you a question again. Is there anything you have done that you are so ashamed of, you don't want anyone to know? What if your mom knew what you did? What if your dad knew what you did? What if, what if God knows what you did? He's all-knowing. And in the gospel, what we're taught is not only is he all-knowing, he is all-loving. He still loves you anyway. Pastor Tim Keller says to be loved, to be loved but not really known is superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is, where we need more, it is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. What is it to live for glory? It's, it's, what is it to, to, to live a life of purpose? It's to live a life of meaning. It's, it's to live a better life, a life abundantly that comes through Jesus. But it's also the glory of it all is to be fully known and fully loved regardless of your mistakes and regardless of your shame. Jesus has come to give us that life. Jesus intended for us to live that kind of life. But there's a problem, and the problem is we are glory thieves. We steal God's glory. We take God's glory. To quote the great theologian, the great biblical teacher, Conor McGregor. Some of you got that, some of you did. Conor McGregor is not a theologian, nor is he a Christian. He is an MMA fighter that lives for all that is material. And I had to clean up his quote a little bit for us this morning. But this is the quote that Conor McGregor gives us. People say, spend money on experience, not materialistic stuff. Here's the part I've cleaned up. Screw that. I say, buy, material, buy materialistic stuff because buying materialistic stuff is buying experience. So I'm killing two birds with one stone. See, what Conor McGregor teaches us in regards to this idea of glory and in regards to what, what Jesus is teaching is that not one human being, nobody is neutral uh, in their worship. No one's worship neutral. Every single human being is bent to worship, give their attention, give their love, get their adoration to something. 
And the way that Jesus shares it is in Matthew 6, 19, where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know what he's saying? He's saying, whatever your treasure is, whatever, wherever, wherever that treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So your treasure is going to control you. Your treasure is going to control your heart. So if your treasure is, is to experience, or if your treasure is stuff, or, or if it's passions, it's going to control your heart. It's going to guide you and lead you in that direction. What controls your heart will control your behavior. What you love, you will run after. And so the world who doesn't believe in God says, run after the experience. Get to the mountaintop. Get all the skiing in you can before you die. Have all of the fun toys you can get before you die. Experience life before you're taken away. That's your meaning. That's your worth. That's your value. None of it echoes in eternity. As the quote goes, he who dies with the most toys still dies. One pastor uh, we recently listened to in marriage, he says, part of the problem, part of this problem in regards to, to stealing glory is it comes down to the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. Do we live for the great glory of the kingdom of God or do we live for the small glory of the kingdom of self? Listen to what Paul Tripp says. Sin causes me to shrink my life down to the size of my life. Sin causes me to shrink my hopes, my dreams, desires, motivations down to the claustrophobic confines of the borders of my own life. Sin causes me to shrink my world down to my wants, my needs, and my feelings. This pastor actually asked the question in the marriage series. He says, guys, men, in the last two months, how, mu in the last two months, how much of your anger was for the kingdom of God? It was one of those moments in the seminar where like, no guy ever looked left or right, just straightforward. Definitely not over to their wife. And as he was preaching this, I realized, man, I'm guilty of this. When was the last time when somebody cut you off on the freeway, you said, glory to the kingdom of God. <laughs> Praise be his name. Worship you, Lord. This is an issue in my own life. Let, let me share a story with you. I've got four children. Most of you know this. I had, a, I had a vision in my mind in raising four kids that when we sat down at the dinner table, I was going to be able to sit down with my four kids at the dinner table, share with my four children the goodness of Jesus Christ, and they'd listen intently and ask for more. Not only would they listen intently, they'd also eat out of respect and love and kindness. Right? That, that was what I want. I thought my kingdom was going to have some order to it. Let me tell you, dinner time is nothing like that. I think the... The number one phrase that I have spoken more in the last seven and a half years is sit down while you're eating your food. You can't throw that on the ground. Pick it up. No, you can't punch your sister. What is wrong with you? Who are your parents? That's how I feel. And I realize in that moment, it's the kingdom of self. I, I, I want my kingdom to be a certain way, and I want my subjects to act a certain way. And when they don't, I get angry. It's not for the kingdom of God. I don't view my children in, in those moments as an opportunity for ministry, as an opportunity for patience, as an opportunity for grace. No, 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 no. I want my world to be the way that I want my world is supposed to be. And dare if anybody gets in the way of that because I'll crush them and I'll crucify them. I'll get mad. How much of your life is really lived for something greater than you? Something bigger than self? See, the reality of what is taught in regards to this about sin is that sin is called, because of this, it's called cosmic treason. Cosmic treason. And what cosmic treason means is that instead of worshiping God, 
Instead of finding our fulfillment from God and his kingdom, we turn our backs on God and we run to the materialistic and towards passion and experiences instead of towards God. It's turning our back on him. And what, what this is called is cosmic treason. Let me, let me explain to you. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean by this. If you went out this morning and you happened to slap a stranger, what kind of punishment would you receive? Might be slight. They might slap you back. They might call the cops. Well, let's just say instead of a stranger, you slapped a friend. Different kind of consequence. Or if you slap your child, different kind of consequence. Slap your spouse, different kind of consequence. Let's raise the ante. What if you slap a cop? Be a nice controversial place to go this morning, right? Well, what if it's not the cop? You get drug in and because you've slapped the cop and now you're before the judge and you decide somehow to run up to the bench and slap a judge. What would the consequence be? What if you slapped a higher government official? But more importantly, above all of that, what if you slapped God? See, to the amount that you send to somebody, it always equals to the amount the punishment will be. You slap a friend, there's a certain punishment. You slap a cop, a certain bigger punishment. Slap a judge, a bigger punishment. Slap God, eternal punishment. Cosmic treason. And somehow we like to ignore this fact. I saw someone on Facebook write, towards another pastor who is promoting their Easter services, and, and a non-believing friend said to them, there isn't one sin I've ever committed that someone deserved to die for. Oops. All sin is deserving of punishment. All sin is cosmic sin. R.C. Sproul says it this way, sin is cosmic treason. What is meant by that statement was that even the slightest sin, even the slightest sin, that a creature commits against its creator does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. I've said it this way before. Every sin is actually an act of atheism, acting as if God is not there. And he is. God is everywhere. He knows what you have done. And yet in his grace and his mercy, God brings to his people a solution to reconcile the sinner, to reconcile the human being back into intimacy with God, back into be fully, being fully known and fully knowing. He brings the solution, and the solution is himself. The greatest act of love is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means wrath-bearing sacrifice. Jesus took the punishment. He took the cosmic punishment for your cosmic treason. Beloved, he goes on, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then verse 19 goes on and says again that we love because he first loved us. The solution is God gave God. God dies in your place. It's what's called the, the, the great exchange where, where Jesus' righteousness is bestowed to you though you don't deserve it. And your sin and your guilt are laid upon him and he's punished for it. That's the solution. We're here this morning to celebrate part of that. Right, have you ever looked at the days of, of, um, 
of the, the cross, the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and, and just the bigger scheme of life. Right on Friday, we, we suffered, right? Friday, Jesus suffered. He went to the cross. He died. It's a day of punishment. It's a day of mourning. And then Saturday, what is Saturday? It's the confusing day. It's the, it's the day of loss. It's, it's the day of wonder. It's the day of doubt. How much of our lives are lived on a Saturday? The days of doubt. The days of what if. But then after the death, we have the Sunday. The day of resurrection. A day of newness. One great quote here in regards to this reality of what Jesus has done for us, our hope, our solution for these things. He says this, your steady, solid hope this morning. And it's the only lasting hope is that if you will trust Christ as your precious Savior and your supremely valued King, then you will be folded into the love of God in a way that no terrorist, no torture, no demons, no disaster, no disease, no man, no microbe, no government, and no grave can destroy. That's our hope this morning. That's the hope of the Christian life. It's not a political hope. It's not a military hope. It's not a financial hope. It's not a geographical hope. It's not a psychological hope or an escapist hope. It's a blood-bought, spirit-wrought, Christ-exalting, God-centered, fear-destroying, death-defeating hope. That's the hope we have as Christians this morning because he didn't just die. He died the sinner's death, but he rose again from the grave. Part of the solution is death, but definitely part of the solution is resurrection. The question underneath the slide, why did Jesus have to come back to life? Let me share something with you. I started ministry to some degree or another at the age of 21. I'm 39 years old, and so over the years, I've been able to sit with a lot of hurting people. I've counseled in a lot of different situations. My very first funeral was for a child that had passed away at the age of six weeks. Difficult days. I've had loved ones pass in my own life. You want to know the reality of, of anyone who's ever come in for counseling or anyone who's ever dealt with pain? Everything at the root, at the root of all that counseling, at the root of all that pain, is a need for a new day, a fresh start, a resurrection. Everyone wants a new beginning when they're in pain. Right? The husband leaves the wife. If we could just go back to the honeymoon. The college child runs off, no longer following God, diving into sin. Ah, if they could just be two again. If I could just have a new day, a fresh start, a resurrection. Jesus promises this resurrection. He promises the newness. Jesus comes out of the grave with bucket loads of new. Fresh starts, mercies new every morning. So we start in John 1, and I want to read to you from John 20, near the end of the gospel. So go to John 20. And I want you to see something very beautiful in John chapter 20. It says, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we see Mary Magdalene. Now, if you remember, Mary, Lag Mary Magdalene, before coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, was at one time possessed by seven demons. Now, here she is with a new mind in John 20, verse 1. I'm going to read a little chunk here. And we're going to take some time to celebrate the resurrection, and then we'll move on. 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is John, who wrote the book. And he said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. She's in pain. She's suffering. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, and because John wrote wrote this, he says this, but the other disciple outran Peter. John's just letting us know that John was faster than Peter. (laughs) It's the only reason I can find that he put that in there. Still just a little bit of pride there. I got to the tomb first, Peter, don't forget. The disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping down to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw, that word saw means looking like at evidence. He was thinking, he's processing. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. And after this, the disciples leave. Pick up in verse 11. But Mary stood outside, weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, you've carried him away. Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. After Jesus had suffered for our sins on the cross, he comes out of the tomb and he meets this woman. What I want to share with you is something I find very interesting in regards to the beauty of Jesus Christ. First of all, I want you to see the factualness of this. The the reason that this passage can be a passage for us to hang our hat on to say that that the resurrection was real, it happened, because some of you this morning might say, some skeptics may say, there's no way, there's no way he was resurrected from the dead. It didn't happen. It can't happen. People don't don't do that. And, And there's some things in here in the text that actually prove to us that it happened. First of all, first of all, in this day and age, Women were not looked at as very valuable or that their opinion mattered. They were seen as low on the totem pole. You can see up on the screen, I have a second century quote from a philosopher who argued against Christianity. He said, listen, the reason you can't listen to Christianity, super popular ladies, buckle up, you're going to love the quote. He says, the reason you can't believe in Christianity is this. He says, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? And all the ladies went, uh-uh. <laughs> but see, you have to understand, as progressive as, as maybe as we have gotten in this day and age or as we are getting, it was way far back in Jesus' day. The argument against Christianity in Jesus' day was you can't believe it because it initially started out with a bunch of women. That was the argument. 
Basically, what they said was, was hey, if you're going to start a new religion, you don't do it with ladies. You do it with powerful men. And yet, Mary Magdalene, who at one time in our day and age, because she was possessed with seven demons, she would have seen not only as a woman, she was a health, she was a health case. She was a mental case. You don't start a religion with someone with that kind of history. And yet Jesus makes her the very first evangelist of Christianity. You want something that's progressive? You want something that's for everybody? Jesus. He starts a whole brand new, as, as one pastor says, no one so no, non-religious has ever started a religion like Jesus did. The most non-religious man you can think of started a religion. This is the promise that Jesus gives. He says, listen, I'm going to start a new, new, new with you, Mary. You were once this, now I'm going to make you this. Jesus gives her extended grace, which the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just factual. It isn't that it, that it just happened, right? As, as some say back in the day, they say, well, there's the swoon theory. And the swoon theory is that, that Jesus actually went through the crucifixion, and when he was put in the grave, he, he didn't die, he just passed out. And then he, he reawoken, and he came out of the grave, and then he appeared to 500 people and carried on his message. Can we be really clear about something? And you can do the study historically for yourself. The Romans knew how to murder somebody. And the cross was, was the creme de la creme, the, most, the, the best way to, to not only make someone go through pain, but it was the guaranteed way to make them suffer for as long as possible and to ensure they died. The swoon theory is ridiculous. Jesus starts a brand new relationship with people through a woman who becomes the very first evangelist. Another evidence you have here is some people say, well, Jesus' body was stolen. Okay, let, let's, let's just look at the facts here for a moment. Mary looks into the tomb, and somehow the robbers, before stealing the body quickly, they decided to take off all of the linen cloths that would keep the stench from Jesus and, and take the time to not only take them off of the body of Jesus, but to fold them up nice and neat and to set them on the place where he lay, and to leave the valuable spices that would keep him from stinking, and then they took him out of the grave. What you have to understand is that without the intervention of Jesus Christ, people will explain away the reality and the impact of what Jesus is. Let me ask you again. What are you living for? What do you find valuable? Is it weighty? Is it important? And Jesus is offering this to you this morning. Not only is the cross and the resurrection a historical reality, it's also extremely merciful and extremely gracious. Who's Mary looking for? She's looking for a dead Jesus. Even in this moment, Mary has seen Jesus do the miraculous, and she comes and she's looking for the body. She says to the, who she thinks is the gardener, give, give him to me, give him back to me, and I'll take him, and I'll bury him, and I'll deal with him. Where have you taken my dead Lord? He's not dead. She doesn't have enough faith to know that he's actually been resurrected. Her view of God is too small in this moment. Do you see Jesus come up to her? In this moment and say, Oh, Mary, where is your faith? What are you doing? Why do you doubt me? Nope. He comes and says, Mary, 
Mary. You know what he's saying in essence where we started? I know you, I know your doubts, and I still love you. What's profound about this in salvation is that if Jesus had not found Mary, Mary would have never found Jesus. What we need in someone's life to come to salvation, to come to the life worth living, the light of men, we need an intervention of Jesus Christ. Mary becomes the first evangelist. What an act of grace that is. Mary becomes the first person that Jesus shows up to. Now, thank God I'm not God, right? Because if I die, just I want you to be clear on this, okay? If I die and I happen to come back to life, I'm not going to appear to just one woman. I'm going to fly up into the sky and go, look at what I did, everybody. Look at me. Right? Jesus could have shown up to anybody he wanted to. We go back and ask the question, how can we believe in Christianity? A man comes back from the dead. Why wouldn't he come to everybody? No, he comes to Mary because Jesus is always intimately concerned with the individual before he is the crowds. Jesus loves you intimately, cares about you intimately, and wants a relationship with you. Grace. The resurrection happened. Your sin has been taken upon Jesus. The grace of God has been bestowed to you as a free gift. You can't earn it. It's been given to you freely. And Jesus invites you to partake in that. Listen carefully this morning if you don't believe in Jesus Christ or if you're wondering, how do I believe? There is only one thing that is necessary. One thing that is necessary for salvation. And it's to admit that you have need. And so often our society is too proud to admit it especially in America, the land of the independent and the land of the free. The relationship with Jesus is always moving from independence to dependence upon God. So here's the invitation. The invitation is, is for those of you who don't know Jesus and you want to know him, you pray in your heart, you give your life to him, you change the way that you're living and you You become a follower of Jesus. You become a disciple of Jesus. What that means is you stop living life for just the kingdom of self. And you pick up the mantle to live life for the kingdom of God. But here's the other part. There's a two-part invitation here. I know it's strange. And that's the invitation for those of you who are skeptical. You you don't know. You want to know. I I had one guy at a college uh, series when I was teaching at a, a, a college group, and a young man came to me, and he says, He said to me, uh, how do I believe in somebody that I don't yet believe in? That was his question to me. Smart young man, I want to believe. What he said to me was, everything you're saying, I want it to be true. But just because I want it to be true doesn't mean it's true. Where do I start? And the second invitation is come journey with us. Come to church on Sundays. We're going to accept you as you are. As an example, there's a tremendous story of a man with his only son, And he comes to Jesus and he says, you can heal my son. My son has been having seizures his entire life. Sometimes the seizures are so bad, he throws himself into the fire. I want my son back. Jesus, would you you heal my son? And then Jesus asks him the question, do you believe? You want something, do you believe? And the man's response is one of the best responses in all of the Bible. I believe. Help my own belief. You know what Jesus doesn't say in that moment? 
Deal with the unbelief. Go do what you need to do. Deal with the unbelief. Then come back to me. Then I'll heal your son. We'll talk when you've dealt with your doubts. No. Upon hearing that, Jesus heals him. He heals him. I heard one young man come to a pastor one time. He said, Pastor, I don't know if I believe everything you're saying. And the pastor said, I don't know if I believe everything I'm saying either. Every single one of us as Christians are on a journey. None of us have made it. None of us know everything. We have doubts. Admit the doubts. Work through your doubts. Come journey with us. Don't just push Christianity off to the side. These people are going to judge me because I don't get it. No, we want you to be part of the family. We want you to journey with us until Jesus brings you to a place where you go, yes, he's worth living for. New start. Fresh beginnings. Grace given to anyone who admits their need the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we sing one last song to you, we pray that you would allow us to take a moment to just celebrate this reality that our sin has been taken away. We do not have to live in guilt and shame. Lord, I'm reminded the time that the Pharisees came to you and said, here's Caesar's coin, what do you say we do with it, Lord? And your response is to give to Caesar what is Caesar's because his image is on that coin. Lord, we bear your image. Just as we prayed over baby Finn this morning, baby Finn has been made in your image. Every one of us has been made in your image. May we give that which belongs to the world back to the world And may we give what belongs to you. We bear your image, Lord. Would we give our lives to you? For some of us this morning, that's a first-time thing. For some of us this morning, we're still working it through. And for some of us, Lord, we just need to remember to keep giving our lives to you. We trust you for the new day. We trust you for salvation. We thank you that the tomb is empty. In Jesus' name, amen.